Tony? John. Good morning, church family. It's good to be with you today, wherever you're joining us from. So good to be in community with you online. You know, today we are reaching kind of the point that we've been building up to since we began this series, The Last 24, for the season of Lent. So we started at the Last Supper, and today we reach our destination for this series, which is the Cross of Golgotha. Now, has it occurred to you that even though there have been many famous deaths throughout world history, there's not a single one save one person who is identified by the manner of their death? So, for instance, when we talk about the assassination, we won't automatically think John F. Kennedy, or if we think about the guillotining, we won't automatically think Marie Antoinette or the stabbing and think Julius Caesar. But when we talk about the crucifixion, that's completely different. We immediately think of Jesus Christ. You know, whether you're a believer or not, when you hear about the crucifixion, you think about Jesus Christ. It's known to you. There is, as far as world history is concerned, one crucifixion, and yet there were many thousands of crucifixions that were practiced over 800 years, and yet not any of them except for this single one had world-transforming impact. But before we move into the final dark hours of Jesus' life following his trials and his torture at the hands of his captives that we heard about last week, we need to go back in time five days. And as many of you know, today is Palm Sunday, and Palm Sunday marks the occasion when Jesus came down from the Mount of Olives and entered the city of Jerusalem to high acclaim. And it also marks the beginning of Holy Week or Passion Week. One of the things that is so unique about Palm Sunday is it's this incredible high point of victory anticipated just five days before the crucifixion. And here's what happens on that day. John chapter 12, verse 12 reads, The next day the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. And what we're seeing here is a great parade for the Messiah. It was clear that by calling Jesus the Lord's representative, and the one who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel, the crowd had correctly discerned who Jesus was and that his purpose was to save. In fact, the palm branches you heard about earlier had a very significant meaning to the people. You see, palm branches represent victory. Palm branches represent victory. If you've got your sermon notes, I just want to encourage you to jot that down. Palm branches for the people represented victory. And so they saw Jesus as a deliverer who could drive out the Roman Empire and reestablish Israel to its former glory. They cried out, Hosanna, which means, save us now. Hosanna, save us now. This was a victory anticipated. On this day, it seemed certain that God had visited his people with the gift of salvation that was long promised through the prophets of old. 
Now, it would be tempting to stay here in this moment of anticipated victory, but Jesus didn't have that luxury, and neither do we. We need to flash forward five days into the future from Sunday evening to Friday morning. And here are the words that pick up our story today in Mark 15, verse 20. Then they led him away to be crucified. Think about that for a minute. All this anticipation on Palm Sunday, this hope and fervent expectation, only to lead to this verse. Then they led him away to be crucified. In less than five full days, Jesus had gone from savior to condemned, from hero to zero. Where were the promises of God? They seemed nowhere to be found. How in the world do we go from Hosanna on Sunday to crucify him on Friday? Well, based on my reading of scripture, I think there's several reasons that this happened. The first thing Jesus did when he entered Jerusalem was he went straight to the temple, to the temple courts, and he overturned the tables of the money changers that were there. Now, essentially, these were people who essentially profited off the back of the poor and put up a paywall that people would have to climb in order to bring their offerings before God. It was basically a human way of making profit at the expense of the poor and at God's expense. They basically had turned God's temple into a marketplace for their own profit. And Jesus took a stand for his heavenly father, and this renewed efforts to kill him. Another factor that led to Jesus' death was that the Jewish people expected a political Messiah who would overthrow the Roman government and restore Israel as the foremost of all the nations. When the people on Palm Sunday welcomed Jesus and identified him as the Messiah, they were right. But what they got wrong was who, what the Messiah would do and what the Messiah would be saving them from. They didn't expect that when Jesus came, he would be, when the Messiah came, that he would be fighting a spiritual battle rather than a political battle. As Holy Week went on, the things that Jesus said and did probably gave pause to some of those who were cheering him on on Palm Sunday. Some of those that probably then said, is this really the Lord's Messiah? I'm not so sure. And finally, another huge factor that led to this moment was the fact that Jesus had been betrayed after the Last Supper by one of his closest friends and abandoned by all the others. This led directly to his trials before the Jewish Sanhedrin and before the Roman governor Pontius Pilate and led to the crowd shouting, crucify him. And all of this and probably more contributed to Jesus' death on that day. But the main reason we went from Hosanna on Sunday to crucify him on Friday uh, is spiritual in nature. You see, the reason behind all of it is a battle that takes place beyond our sight. And it's something that the, uh, papal, uh, the preacher to the papal household, Raniero Cantalamessa, calls the triple alliance of evil. Now, stick with me. I know this sounds fantastical, but it's biblical, I assure you. 
this triple alliance of evil uh, is very, um, very dangerous, something that we all experience throughout our lives. And the first of these is the enemy within us, and that is the world, the enemy within us. You and I don't need to look very far to see evil in this world. We know that this world is hostile to the things of God. And the world is all around us. And when we hear of mass shootings, like what took place in Boulder, or hear about violent expressions of racial hatred, like what happened in Atlanta, we're overcome with a sense that the world around us is hostile to the love, forgiveness, and peace that Jesus embodied. In fact, in the moment he overturned the tables in the temple, Jesus was demonstrating that the world God created had turned against God, that it wasn't as it should be. The second enemy in this triple alliance of evil is the enemy within us, which is the flesh. The flesh is uh, a synonym the Bible often uses for sin. And look, as uncomfortable as this is to admit to ourselves, let alone to others, each of us have a sin problem. It's why we so desperately need Jesus. Evil is insidious by nature, turning us against God, against the people around us, and against ourselves. Our desires become disordered. A legitimate desire for love can lead us to commit adultery, for instance. There's nothing wrong with the desire to be loved, but sin twists that desire and uses it to injure. To say that the spirit is strong but the flesh is weak is simply to acknowledge we know what is right, but often we choose what is sinful because we believe it will fill a desire. But sin only leaves us empty and alone. The third enemy in this triple alliance of evil is the enemy above us, and that is the devil. Or, as the book of Ephesians puts it, those authorities and spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Basically, it's, it's another way of saying there are forces of evil that our eyes can't see. They have authority over the world, twisting and destroying lives. The minute Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit, disobeying God, evil sees the authority humanity was called to exercise over the earth as God's stewards. We became fallen creatures dominated by the power of sin in a fallen world. Here's why I'm sharing this with you this morning. This triple alliance of evil that I'm talking about, the enemy above us, the enemy within us, and the enemy around us. You see, on that morning when Jesus was led to be crucified, led away to be crucified, evil threw everything it had at him. And as we read through the story of the crucifixion today, we're going to see all over that story the enemy around us, the enemy within us, and the enemy above us, all throughout the story. And to evil, victory seemed to be in sight. Now, after the flogging and torture that we heard about last week, the Roman soldiers forced Jesus to walk the longest possible route through Jerusalem to Golgotha, to the place where he was crucified. We, we have come to call this route the Via Dolorosa, which means the way of suffering. If you walk to the Via Dolorosa today, this is just one narrow street of the Via Dolorosa. If you walked it today, there are certain sections where you would see shopkeepers hawking their wares, people singing, praying, reading scripture, and you'd often see pilgrims with tears in their eyes. 
The reason Jesus was made to walk the longest route through Jerusalem was to act as an example to the people in Jerusalem that Rome would not be challenged. It was to make them think twice about rising up against Roman rule. The soldiers, while they walked through these pathways, had boxed Jesus in. There were one on the left, one on the right. There was one behind and one in front. And the soldier in front carried a wooden plaque that proclaimed the crime that Jesus had committed. And as we know later on in the story, this this sign read, the king of the Jews, which was essentially a charge of insurrection against Rome. Now, normally when we see renditions of Jesus carrying the cross through the streets of Jerusalem, we see something like this. But what we find historically is that this classic image is somewhat challenged by the reality of what actually happened. And what we learn from history is that oftentimes the vertical part of the cross, this part right here, would be left at the site of the crucifixion, which meant that the condemned person would end up just carrying the horizontal, the cross beam part of the cross through the streets. Now, don't get me wrong. This cross beam here could weigh upwards of 100 pounds. And we've got to remember that Jesus was beaten nearly to death by his torturers, by the Roman soldiers who had flogged him. He was hardly at full strength. And at some point in this horrible plotting journey through the streets of Jerusalem, Jesus fell. And that takes us to verse 21. A passerby named Simon, who was from Cyrene, was coming in from the countryside just then. And the soldiers forced him to carry Jesus' cross. Simon was the father of Alexander and Rufus. And they brought Jesus to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. They offered him wine drugged with myrrh, but he refused it. Simon was likely impressed into service by one of the Roman soldiers who reached out with his spear and tapped Simon's shoulder with the flat of his spear blade. Simon likely resented having to carry this condemned man's cross and likely also resented the criminal for whom he carried it. But I'd imagine as Simon carried that cross along the streets of Jerusalem, as he felt the weight of that cross beam on his back, he began to reflect on his own life. Imagine for a moment carrying the implement of someone else's execution, the weight of it, the ugliness of it. What would be going through your mind? Can you imagine? Simon didn't have to imagine. And when they arrived at the place of Golgotha and that cross beam came off of Simon's shoulders, did he stay? Or did he leave immediately and go back to business as usual? The most interesting thing about this is Simon must have been known to the church because Mark went out of his way to name drop his sons Alexander and Rufus. And what's really interesting is Rufus is mentioned in Paul's greeting to the Roman church in Romans chapter 16. Also, Simon, a man from Cyrene, which is modern-day Libya in North Africa, might also be Simeon, who was called Niger in the book of Acts. Simeon uh, was a preacher and teacher in the church of Antioch. 
and, uh, and it's possible because of the similarities of where they came from and the similarities in their names that these two could be the same person. So is it possible that Simon of Cyrene became a believer because he carried the cross of Christ? Well, whether Simon was Simeon or not, there's one thing that's clear in my mind. One cannot carry the weight of the cross along the way of suffering and emerge unchanged. I'll say it again. One cannot carry the weight of a cross along the way of suffering and emerge unchanged. That experience stayed with Simon, and it likely transformed his life. Jesus once taught his disciples that in this world, we will experience suffering. You may be walking the path of suffering right now with the weight of something just dragging you down. You may be tempted to collapse in the middle of the street, to call it a quits. Maybe like Jesus, your body just can't take any more. But there's this moment when Jesus reminds us to take heart, for I have overcome the world. And as we continue our story this morning, we're going to see how Jesus overcomes even as evil is preparing its victory toast. Over the course of our series, the last 24, we have been building up to this point from the Last Supper to the cross of Golgotha. The next part of the story takes place from 9 a.m. to noon. And so we go on to verse 24. Then the soldiers nailed him to the cross. They divided his clothes and threw dice to decide who would get each piece. It was nine o'clock in the morning when they crucified him. A sign announced the charge against him. It read, the king of the Jews. Two revolutionaries were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. The people passing by shouted abuse, shaking their heads in mockery. Ha, look at you now, they yelled at him. You said you were going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Well then, save yourself and come down from the cross. The leading priests and teachers of religious law also mocked Jesus. He saved others, they scoffed, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down from the cross so we can see it and believe him. Even the men who were crucified with Jesus ridiculed him. Arriving at Golgotha, the place of the skull, we're told that it was there that the soldiers nailed Jesus to the cross, first stripping him of the few possessions that he had left. The way of crucifixion, the, the way it was done varied depending on the whims of the person who was in charge. Sometimes the arms were nailed at the wrists, which were considered to be part of the hands, and sometimes the arms were simply secured by rope to the crossbeam. But the feet were always nailed without exception to the cross. Now, whenever we picture the crucifixion of Jesus, we likely picture something like this. This is kind of the traditional image of the crucifixion with the nails through the palms and then one nail going through the feet at the bottom of the cross. And every crucifix you've ever seen has Jesus in this pose with one nail going through his feet, one foot on top of the other at the front of the cross. But recent scholarship has reason to believe that this image here may not be historically accurate. You see, in 1968, 
something called an ossuary was unearthed in Jerusalem. An ossuary is a bone box, essentially. And within this box, they found the bones of a man identified as Yehonan. And Yehonan was executed by way of crucifixion. It was the condition of the bones that helped the scholars to understand more about crucifixion than we knew before. They saw in Yehonan's case, there were indications of rope burn marks against his wrist bones. But it was the feet that revealed the most about what had happened. This is a, uh, the bone, one of the bones that they found. This is the heel bone of Yehonan. And you see, found between, what they found, which was very interesting, is between the nail head and the bone itself, there was a piece of wood. And so what this led the scholars to determine is that the nail pierced the wood first, went through the bone, and into the cross. Each foot would be pressed against either side of the cross with the nail through each of the feet. It's a little different than we typically picture, but it's no less cruel. Let's go to the next picture. So, Yehonan lived 2,000 years ago. That's, that's how long ago that they dated the bones, which was around the same time Jesus walked this earth. So, it's quite possible, even probable, that the way Yehonan was crucified was exactly the way that Jesus was crucified. Nails through the wrists and either foot on either side of the cross. Now, scholars in studying the effects of crucifixion determined that the cause of death was actually suffocation. And this manner of death in particular is very disturbing because Jesus, uh, let's put G Jesus back on the, uh, there. When we consider who Jesus is, that he is the word of God who was with God at the beginning of time and who was God at the creation of the world. When we consider who this is, the fact that the cause of death was suffocation is downright disturbing because God breathed life, the breath of life, into our lungs. We human beings are inhabited by the breath of God that, that makes us alive. And now God's creation, God's human beings, who he gave the breath of life to, we're now taking it away from him. Just think about that. To get a gasping breath on the cross, you would have to push your body up. You'd have to push up on the cross to get a breath. And the more you did this, the longer you were on the cross, the harder it was to push your body up, the harder it was to get a gasping breath the less air you got. In fact, crucifixion was sometimes sped up by breaking the legs of the victims so that they could no longer lift themselves up and get a breath. That's exactly what happened to Yehonan, and it's actually what happened to the two men who were crucified on either side of Jesus. They had their legs broken as well. Now, speaking of these men, some true translations label them as criminals or thieves. But this is something that, that we have a problem with because few of us can relate to it. It's, it's too imprecise. However, in the New Living Translation, they're presented as revolutionaries or rebels. And even though it may not seem obvious at first, 
we can actually identify with this because who among us has not rebelled against God's rule in our lives? The men condemned to die with Jesus weren't trying to throw off Roman rule because it was for God's sake or because God had directed them to do it. They simply wanted self-rule. And self-rule is only sin rule, a, a false type of freedom that only leads to death because we can never be our own masters. We either serve God or we serve those forces that oppose God. In fact, both of these men mock Jesus along with the others, well, at least at first. But in one of the other Gospels, one of the men reflects on his choices on life, on the character of Jesus, and repents. My theory is that the man who repents hears Jesus praying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. And I'd imagine that Jesus continued to pray this prayer as the mocking grew more intense, more loud, and evil continued to throw everything that it had at him. But through it all, this man came to see that he was getting the just desserts for his sin, that the consequences in his life had led him, of the choices that he had made, had led him to this place. He saw that Jesus was the only human being alive who didn't deserve to die under the charge of insurrection, the only one who hadn't rebelled against God's just rule. You and I have rebelled against God's rule. It's true. That's why Jesus came, why the cross was necessary, that we might be forgiven and restored in right relationship with Jesus, with God. What we see in the two men crucified on either side of Jesus is the story of humanity and the most important choice that each and every one of us needs to make. Do we repent of our sins? Do we believe in Jesus? Do we trust in him and receive the hope, the forgiveness, the peace, the assurance, the new life that God offers to us? Or do we continue to mock him and live for ourselves? What is so profound about this moment is one man chooses life even while he is dying. That's what the crowd was unable to understand, as stirred up as they were by this triple alliance of evil to heap abuse on Jesus. The mockers taunted Jesus to come down off the cross so that they could see and believe. But they might as well have been asking Jesus to become another person. The great irony here is that the reason we believe in Jesus today is that he refused to come down from the cross. And in that refusal, we learned that there are no limits to the love that God has for us. God would not withhold himself from the most horrendous experience that the forces of evil could concoct. He fully embraced what appeared to all the world to be a crippling defeat. And here's how it ends. Verse 33. At noon, darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. Then at three o'clock, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabatani, which means, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Some of the bystanders misunderstood and thought he was calling for the prophet Elijah. One of them ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, holding it up to him on a reed stick so he could drink. Wait, he said. Let's see whether Elijah comes to take him down. Then Jesus uttered another loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the Roman soldier who stood facing him saw how he had died, 
he exclaims, this man truly was the Son of God. Three hours had passed since Jesus had been put up on the cross. And darkness, at noon, darkness fell across the whole land. This was a darkness like the darkness that the Israelites experienced in Egypt when the Egyptian firstborn died and they observed the very first Passover. It was this darkness that preceded the crossing of the Red Sea, which ended up being the passage of salvation for the Jewish people that defines their community from that time to this very day. But in the moment, as Jesus gasped for breath on the cross, the darkness must have seemed oppressive. Because in that moment, Jesus cried out to God, feeling completely cut off from his heavenly Father, with the weight of the sin, past, present, and future, the world's sin on his shoulders. As Paul tells us in the New Testament, Christ became sin for us. None of us can imagine what Jesus went through on that cross. That Jesus shares his feeling that God has abandoned him, it sometimes makes us feel uncomfortable. We have a hard time with that. But we need to understand the context of Psalm 22, which was the psalm that Jesus was quoting when he said, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? You see, Psalm 22 was written in the days of King David, and it prophetically pointed to the sufferings of the cross. In it, the psalmist is surrounded by enemies on all sides and experiences a feeling of separation from God. But that's all it ended up being, just simply a feeling. By the end, we realize as the psalmist's situation changes that God was with him all along, that even the notion that God had forsaken him was an expression of abiding trust that God was still present through it all. You see, when Jesus cried out to God from the cross, expressing this sense of abandonment, it wasn't a lack of faith. It was a deep, abiding expression of faith. And then the loud cry comes at 3 p.m. The Greek word here is tetelestai. Tetelestai is often translated as it is finished, but it more simply just means finished. I imagine that the Triple Alliance of Evil interpreted it as a throwing in of the towel as I'm spent. But tetelestai means more than just finished. It also means completed and fulfilled. As the darkest moment on the cross passes, Jesus finds his purpose in life fulfilled. And that purpose was to live out the requirements of God's law, to perfectly embody God's intention for humanity in this world. In that moment, he's revealed as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. All the rituals of Israel point to this very moment. He is complete. And then he breathes his last and dies. Now you need to understand that Crosses were no more than nine feet tall. You probably have seen some images of crosses that were, it seemed like they were 20 feet tall, but crosses were typically only nine feet tall. So Jesus could, was only about two to three feet above his mother Mary, the disciple John, and the soldiers who gambled for his clothing. He could look into their eyes. It was intimate. And when Jesus let out that loud cry and breathed his last, the Roman soldier standing and facing him 
looked upon Jesus, and he was overcome, and he confessed, truly this man was the Son of God. Like the soldier, whenever I read this part of the story, I'm also overcome with a sense of awe at what happened in that moment. As if God knew we'd need more convincing, we're told in the story that the veil, the curtain that's in the temple between the most holy place, which is God's earthly throne among the people and the rest of the temple and the rest of the community, that curtain, that veil is torn in two from top to bottom. Let me say it again. It's torn from top to bottom because what that veil represents is the barrier of separation between a holy God and a sinful people. Only the high priest could go beyond that veil and only once a year to offer sacrifices on the Day of Atonement. But for the first time since the fall of humanity, that, that barrier, that separation that the veil represented between God and humanity is finally gone. Because of Jesus, our true high priest who fulfilled God's law, there's now full access for you and for me to enter into the presence of God. In the end, Jesus was up on the cross for six hours. It must have felt like an eternity to him, bearing the weight of the world's sin, past, present, and future. And yet, six hours was mercifully short compared to the many days that some people suffered and wasted away on a Roman cross. Yet those six hours reverberate into eternity. You know, oftentimes, people who are not Christians will ask us why it is we make such a big deal of the crucifixion of Jesus. It's an important question, and I think it's equally important to ask, what does the crucifixion mean for us today? Well, as we close today, I, wanna, I want you to recall the triple alliance of evil that we talked about earlier, the enemy around us, the enemy within us, and the enemy above us those forces that put our Savior on the cross. I want you to re remember them because what Jesus did on the cross robs them of their power. You see, the crucifixion means that the Lord is with us, overcoming the world around us. The Lord is with us, overcoming the world around us. You know, this broken and dangerous world is the enemy around us, but because of what Jesus did for us, the Lord is now with us and promises to be with us wherever we go. Here's what we can learn from Joshua 1.9, one of God's amazing promises. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be, what? With you wherever you go. When Jesus walked the earth, he told his disciples that when they looked on him, they would see the Father because he and the Father are one in purpose. In Jesus, God revealed himself in a way that we can understand. We understand that he's with us, and as scary and dangerous and broken as this world is, we understand that Jesus has overcome the world. That's who is with us. That's who's promised to be with us to the very end of the age. The one who overcame the very worst that this world threw at him and brought about victory by suffering what appeared to be defeat. We also learn 
that the crucifixion means that the Lord is within us, overcoming our flesh, our sinfulness. What Jesus did ensures we no longer need to be ruled over by sin. We no longer need to be overcome by sin. Sin's power is broken and we're free to be ruled by another master. Listen to how Paul understood this in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives, what? In me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Church family, listen to me closely. Christ died for you so you could live for him. Christ died for all of us so that we could live for him. That's the great exchange that took place on the cross in the place called Golgotha. When we receive God's love and determine to live for Christ, which is the very definition of discipleship, God reforms our spirit. Those disordered desires that once drove us are no longer in the driver's seat. We die to sin and begin to change, taking on the characteristics of the Savior we so admire. Others can see Jesus on us, and that leads to transformation and confidence that God's love is more powerful than our sinfulness. Finally, the crucifixion means that the Lord is over us, overcoming the devil's rule. Remember those spiritual forces of evil that our eyes can't see in the heavenly realms? The cross breaks their power and limits their time. The victory on the cross is the moment when the head of the snake is cut off and the body is still thrashing around, but only for a limited time. Their authority is broken. And authority is now back in the right hands. At the end of Matthew's gospel, in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, this is what Jesus tells his disciples. I have been given all authority in heaven and earth. All authority. We humans squandered and abused the authority that God gave to us. We became enslaved to powers that our eyes can't see. But now that authority is in the right hands. We have assurance that even though there's still evil and suffering in our world, the definitive victory has been won. But the cross is a victory only fully realized through resurrection. And so we look forward with great anticipation to that day when we can come together in a week to celebrate Easter Sunday because that is the foretaste of the many great blessings yet to come. It's a taste of the victory that we have in the present. You remember at the beginning of our worship service today, uh, we were talking about, here it is, we were talking about the palms. And palms represent God's victory. And how fitting it is that the palms that represent victory are now shaped into the form of a cross. Because of what Jesus has done, the veil is torn. There is no longer any separation between us and God. Because of what Jesus has done, this world doesn't have to overcome you. Sin doesn't have to make its home in you. The enemy doesn't have to rule above you and over you. That's why we remember this death over all other deaths. That's why when we talk about the crucifixion, everybody knows that we're talking about Jesus. 
What God did for us on the cross is good news in these dark times because you and I can know that no enemy can stand against a God who is with us, a God who is within us, and a God who is over us. So we come to the end of our story. It is finished. Jesus breathes his last. His body is taken down from the cross and claimed by Joseph of Arimathea. His body is placed in a tomb and the stone is rolled across the door. Darkness fills the tomb and the world holds its breath. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are in awe of what you have done for us. Lord, you have taken on flesh. You have lived a human life. You did not withhold a single thing from us. Your life, everything that you are, everything that you have was poured out for our sake on that cross. Because of you, we know that there is now no limit to God's love. Because of you, there is no separation between us and God. Because of you, we know that we have a God who is with us, a God who is within us, and a God who is over us. And we know that you, Lord, can beat back this triple alliance of evil, the enemy around us, the enemy above us, and the enemy within us. You are more powerful than they. And on the day of their victory, you turn that victory into a defeat. And what seemed to be a defeat became the greatest victory that we still talk about 2,000 years later. God, forgive us for the sins that, have, that caused you to go to, to choose the cross, Lord, to save us. Forgive us for our sins, Lord, and for all of those sins that you carried upon your shoulders. But thank you for who you are, for your forgiveness. If there is someone today who doesn't know you, I pray that you would open their hearts. I pray that they would accept you as Lord and Savior, that you would come into their lives and transform their lives like that thief on the cross, like Simon of Cyrene. I pray, Lord, for each of us who already trust in your name, that we would go on trusting in you, that we would walk this earth and be fulfilled in our purpose by allowing you to live through us by the power of your Holy Spirit. God, thank you for hearing our cry of Hosanna, save us now, for that is exactly what you did. And to you goes the victory, O Lord. So God, we lift up our hearts to you and we pray these things with gratitude and great expectation in the holy and mighty and awesome and powerful in all-sufficient name of Jesus Christ and all God's people say, amen and amen.